Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. This week we react to the Champions League. Very good results for both Liverpool and Manchester City. But what will Paris Saint-Germain and their star man Kylian Mbappe have to say about whether they're the best teams in Europe right now? We'll also ask if Bayern Munich are the dominant force that they once were. We get an update on the owner's charter in the Premier League and look ahead to some great ties in the Europa League. This is The Game. Hello again, I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Welcome back to the game. I'm alongside Tom Clark and Ian Hawkey joins us, of course, because European football is back with the Champions League. Let's start with last night's action. Liverpool winning the first leg of the last 16 tie at Inter Milan 2-0, thanks to goals from Roberto Firmino and Mo Salah. Navigating with some comfort in the end what looked to be a very tricky fixture. Ian, what was key to Liverpool's win for you? Well, the the changes, uh, the substitutions. I mean, you know, the, the manager looks very astute for the changes he made and when he made them, because you know there there was a there was a period, wasn't there, where Inter really had some sustained pressure and and Liverpool looked like they didn't know how to get out of it, and then on came Henderson and Firmino, obviously decisively, and you know a a, a really good set piece, which is which is something that they they know how to do. You know, they are the better of the two sides. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think the manager can probably take quite a lot of credit for, for getting themselves out of a bit of a hole. And yeah, I, I think they should be safe now. The, the, only, the only thing is, I mean, Inter will, will feel pleased with an hour they put in in that game. And they will also remember that Liverpool in recent years under Klopp have had a couple of slightly chaotic second legs, haven't they, in the Champions League? Remember Roma? 2018 and of course Atletico Madrid so you know there's there's possible precedents where 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 Liverpool might not be in such control but I just think they're a more mature side and they've got more strength and depth than than they did two years ago or or five years ago so yeah I think I think that's done oh I wouldn't say it was done Ian that's a bold call um two nil most difficult lead in football isn't it that's the that's the cliche isn't it I thought it's interesting from the point of view of two of the things that Ian mentioned there because it links to some of the things that we've done to cover the game. Tom Roddy's written a piece uh, from Milan talking about Liverpool's kind of strength in depth, which I think is quite uh, telling in the big competitions this season. For a while, and there was lots of discussion last season, wasn't there, about the gap between their first eleven and how strong that was. You always knew what Liverpool's best team was if it came to a big match or to a cup final. But then the 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 kind of replacements, the stand-ins weren't as good. And I think as Ian touched on there, the fact that he picked Harvey Elliott, you know, very, very talented player. And it's amazing that he was starting a Champions League game after that injury, of course, but wasn't his best performance. But they can change it up and they can bring players on that can make a difference. I think that's a really telling thing for Liverpool this season. And set pieces, we've got a fascinating piece from Paul Joyce that'll be on Times website later today talking about the work that they did in pre-season um, with a company called Neuro11, which, and there's a fascinating video with it on YouTube as well, that Liverpool players were kind of fitted with this kind of kit that they wore around their head. And then they took penalties, free kicks, corners, and it was all about measuring their kind of composure, if you like, all sorts of me- complicated scientific metrics that you'll have to read Paul Joyce's <laughs> piece because he explains it far better than I do. But it was fascinating in terms of Klopp looking at where they maybe weren't as good and looking to improve them. 
We know they're great at counter-attacking. We know that they're great at pressing and nicking the ball back and scoring goals. And then he looks to add something else. And, and it's telling. They've scored 14 goals from set pieces in the Premier League. That's the most of any team. And now with Firmino's goal last night, they've scored five from set pieces in the Champions League, which is the most of any team as well. So those two things to me suggest more of a kind of ruthless, efficient Liverpool which, as Ian says, it kind of slightly contrasts the slight kamikaze, hectic nature of some of their Champions League performances in the past. You've got to be amazed by Liverpool, who've played such an incredible style of football for so long. Um, I was hearing, I heard an incredible stat about the number of offsides against Liverpool with their high defensive line. Um, I think you know it's like forty percent higher than any other team in terms of catching uh, players offside in the Premier League so far. Their defence was was. Excellent. Inter Milan didn't have a single shot on target in the entire game. Joel Matip is usually their unsung hero in central defence, but he was actually replaced for this game by Ibrahim Akanate, 22 years old. We said he was a star in the making at Leipzig, but actually given he's had a little bit of time out of the starting lineup on his arrival at Liverpool, he's come back into it and he actually seems to have gone on a step, Ian. He was fantastic last night. Yeah, I thought he was absolutely uh, terrific, you know, doing doing the old-fashioned stuff, getting in the way. Good to have um, a partner like Virgil van Dijk, who was also outstanding, I thought, uh, last night. And yeah, I mean, another, along with Luis Diaz, another tick in in Liverpool's recruitment uh, strategy. The thing I would say without being overcritical about Ponate is that you'd like to think that there's a little bit of room for improvement with, with his distribution and, you know, his his willingness to be sort of daring with, with, with longer passes and, and, and mastering that. But, you know, he's got plenty of time to work on that. But but it is an important part of the way Liverpool play. So so, you know, I think I think if he masters that then, you know, he's He's in with a shout of being Van Dyke's preferred partner. Absolutely, he is. I mean, I looked at the bench. They showed pictures of the bench last night, Jurgen Klopp, but sitting behind him, Joe Gomez, you know, a figure who at the start of the season, he was complaining, wasn't called up for England in the shape of Joe Gomez. But Jurgen Klopp can't be angry anymore. In fact, you probably think his future is, is away from Liverpool at this point in time. Uh, which is a bit of a side note because I think actually on the evening it was very important that Liverpool especially got the second goal great bit of poachery from Mo Salah do you think Tom the tie is now done then? I don't think it's quite done yet because whilst as you say Inter didn't have a shot on target they did obviously hit the bar I think they have players you know Ed and Dzeko to me is one of the great underrated strikers of the modern era he's always got the chance to convert you know, a, a Salah type goal if it drops to him in the box. And if they can do that in the first half of the return leg, then it, it's game on. What I would say is that with Liverpool, you always think that they will score as well. So that's the problem for Inter now. They have to come out and try and attack the game. And then it just plays perfectly into to, into Liverpool's hands. A team that's definitely going to have to attack in the second leg is Sporting Lisbon. I mean, they've got to come out fighting from the start, don't they? Uh, you've got to say Manchester City all but confirmed into the last day. An incredible 5-0 win in Lisbon for them. Ian, they, they terrorised the Sporting defence. Was this for you the sort of result that sends a massive warning sign to the rest of Europe? Or in many ways, was it a mismatch? Well, yes, I mean, it, it was a bit of a mismatch. The one thing uh, I would say, and, and, you know, this is not, not to, you know, sound patronising, um, and, and I only saw it on, on, on television, but I thought the sporting fans were amazing. You know, they were 
they were they were still there making noise. Um, and actually, if you look at the recent history of that club, you know they can be oh, well. Sections of the sporting fans can be a fairly combative lot when they don't approve of what's going on. It was I don't know. It just seemed to me like a, a quite a sort of heart rending display of, of loyalty and and um, you know we're, uh, we're you'll never walk aloneness. Um, but yeah, I mean it it it's, it, it it was a mismatch, wasn't it? Um, and you know, Sporting did unfortunately look like a club who haven't been in this territory for a very long time, which they haven't, and and they were up against an absolutely rhapsodic City at times, weren't they? Uh, yeah, you know, clearly, clearly, City are are the team to be feared, and 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 I would say that um, you know that there might be more of this. Sporting are the the champions of Portugal, Inter are the champions of Italy. And next week we've got the champions of Spain against Manchester United, who aren't always rhapsodic, but you know have a chance in that. And the champions of France up against Chelsea. So brace yourself for quite a lot of Premier League breast beating by the end of this round. I think. Firstly, I've just got to mention probably the best goal. This is a half volley. Those of you that need adjudication, Bernardo Silva's first goal was unbelievable. I think this is the thing about Manchester City, especially playing against Sporting. Maybe they didn't get the TV audience going up against PSG Real Madrid. What a goal. What a great performance, Tom, from Silva as well. Absolutely. Well, he's continuing to stake that claim, isn't he, to, for your hipster alternative view for player of the year instead of Mo Salah. As you say, I mean, I'm with you. I don't know about you guys. Give me a half volley over a volley any day in terms of that way that the players have to strike the ball and they kind of arrow into the goal. You know, there's no dip, there's no deviation. Um, it's a beautiful thing to watch. I mean, I, I'd be interested to know, obviously, because in terms of the game, you would suggest that the tie is over. I mean, Ian, I can remember, and Hugh, I'm sure you're the same, for kind of a few generations ago, English fans in European football, the fear was always Real Madrid or Barcelona. And then for a while, and perhaps it still is, Bayern Munich as well. In Europe and in Spain, are City and Liverpool now viewed as those two teams? Are they the teams that everyone goes, God, we're not going to stop them? Yes. And I think I think this season until, well, until maybe last week, Bayern Munich, you know, I, I think I think there's a fair, there's a sort of consensus that going into this stage of the Champions League, City, Liverpool, Bayern, and a little bit behind Chelsea as the favourites. But, you know, clearly Bayern have had a little bit of a stumble. So, yeah, I, I would say Liverpool and, and City generally viewed as quite a way above the rest. Although a new acknowledgement, I think, of PSG after after Tuesday night, um, not you know, not quite the flaky team that people suspected. Well, 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 Ian, take it easy. Take it easy. Not flaky. They might have won the game. It should have been four. This tie shouldn't have even been in the balance. You know, we're talking about Liverpool and Manchester City being the best two sides in Europe. They wouldn't have let Real Madrid get out of there with a 1-0 defeat. And it was a fortunate goal. It was an awful piece of defending. It had a little nick off Valverde's foot to nutmeg Courtois. And I'm not saying oh, it wasn't dear. a deserved victory. Whoa, I'm not saying it wasn't a deserved victory. But if PSG get knocked out 2-1, say, on aggregate, and it doesn't go their way back in Spain, they will only have themselves to blame. And I will be telling you, it was flaky from them to be knocked out. <laughs> We're only halfway through, Ian. But all I'm going to say is it wasn't... It could have been, but it wasn't the perfect night for PSG. Am I wrong? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. I mean, the, uh, uh, I think you have defined flakiness superbly. And, uh, you know, I, I misused the word. 
Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely right in most things. Um, uh, they should have won by more. Uh, uh, Courtois, Courtois was terrific, you know, until he got nutmeg rather unfortunately at the end. Um, I think to describe the the winning goal as entirely fluky might be an exaggeration. Um, you know, a lot of very good work went into it from the from the outstanding player on the night. And um, you know, Mbappe Mbappe is really good at this. Really good at settling games in favour of a previously flaky Paris Saint-Germain close to the end. So, you know, he, you know, he, he's become an expert at that. Um, but, but yeah, you're right. You can, you can easily see Real Madrid, although they will be without Casemiro, which is important, and without Felon Mendy suspension. You could see them conjuring up some of the old class and, and getting away with this. But at, at the same time, you know, the PSG were in command of of that game to, to an astonishing degree, really, um, without 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 capitalising with enough goals. And 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 you know, I, I think that reflects well on Pochettino, who's had a lot of criticism for for some of the flakiness we've seen over the last eighteen months from PSG. But yeah, I mean, it's intriguing, intriguing. You 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 could see Real Madrid getting away with it. Ian, you mentioned Madrid, and I mean, I was. Looking at some of the stats this morning, we've just discussed Liverpool and City and you quite rightly say Bayern in there with them. But for, for me, Madrid, are they not still up there as well? I know they're behind in the tie now, but they're, they're second behind Bayern for chances created in the tournament this season. And they've also conceded the fewest goals joint with Bayern and Chelsea. So, you know, are they still contenders or is it this kind of a fading giant that is clinging on thanks to the experience of Modric and Casemiro and players like that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the stats is, is, is interesting. I, I, I didn't know that. And, it, and actually, you know, they, 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 had a, they had a reasonably challenging group. It's not as if they walked through that. And, and, and indeed, they, they lost, didn't they, to Eric Kirispol at home, um, which, is, you know, which is not a gauge to, to judge them. I think in... In defence of Ancelotti, who is being accused of being cowardly in in the, the approach he took to the game in Paris, Benzema was not was not fully fit, so it was a risk to play him, um, and you know he didn't he didn't look himself. Slightly more alarmingly, uh, Vinicius was was barely visible. Um, I think he was very well marked by Ashraf Hakimi, but it does indicate that when Vinicius, who's had a terrific season, isn't lively um, and running at people, they they can they can look very quickly rather bland. So uh, yeah, I mean of course you know that that midfield that midfield is you know is sort of immortal, isn't it? The, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can no longer say oh, Modric is a bit over here. I can't see him. I can't see him dragging a, a time and his way because you know he 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 can still do that. There's no doubt. And, and defensively, defensively, they are they are strong. Courtois had a very good season, given that they've lost Sergio Ramos. The centre halves are generally uh, Eder Militao and David Alaba have, have have gelled together quite well. But I, I still wouldn't trust them as much as well. You wouldn't trust them as much as City, and I wouldn't trust them as much as Liverpool. And I would back Bayern to beat them should that happen. Interesting, interesting. Um, Tom, Kylian Mbappe's performance, I mean, Danny Carvajal probably still having nightmares, probably will for the next few weeks at least. Um, 
it's one of those. He was up against a team that he's probably going to join next season. He almost wanted to show the PSG fans what the club meant to him and that he still sees success in their future together, even if it only lasts the next few months. Is he is he the best player in the world right now? Is that still Mo Salah for you? It's still Mo Salah for me. Mbappe is a player that fascinates me because it's almost like this is not a criticism, but whenever I watch him and whenever I read about him and think about him in the context of modern football, he seems like one of those players that come along every now and again that is a little bit stuck in that mould of the 18-year-old wonder kid. It's almost like he's always that. And maybe it is that he needs to move to Real Madrid and become a modern Galatico and win loads of trophies and then he'll be put on the pedestal as the greatest in the world. I don't know. Maybe I've got too much of the um, old stereotype about PSG and the Farmers League and all that nonsense, but he seems stuck. He produces these wonderful moments at the kind of the highlight reels, the social media clip footballer, but there's something about him that's not quite gone to the next level yet to me. I don't know. I I don't know whether I'm wrong. I don't know whether you guys would agree. Ian, I don't. I also find it fascinating this kind of narrative around a player in mod in modern game. You know, we, I know we used to have it back in the day, where again, as I said, it felt like Barca and Real were the two big clubs, and every player ended up there in, at some point. In the modern respect, I find it quite fascinating that you have the BT commentators going, "He scored for PSG against the team he'll be playing for next season." Is that a done deal? I mean, I don't know. And also, do you guys agree? Is he kind of not quite there? To me, he's just not, he's not quite reached that top, top, top level yet. I think Tom has hit the nail on the head. I think the two things are absolutely connected. I think there is a part of Kylian Mbappe who feels that at PSG, who he joined when he was still a teenager, that he is, he is still in this space where he is a wonder kid. And, and I think possibly the nature of PSG, the way it's structured and the, the importance of Neymar and now the importance of Messi, it sort of imposes a perception of him as somehow junior. And so I, I think that is part of the drive for him to move on. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of employees would recognize this phenomenon that you're you know, stuck in the same place for a while. You assume a role and those around you sort of unconsciously put that role on you. So, you know, I, I, I think this is a genuine part of the drive to join Real Madrid. And, and as Tom said, that's, that's, there's a sort of old-fashionedness to that as well. You know, it is the great Real Madrid. It may not be the, you know, the all-powerful team in Europe right now, but it is historically the desired, the, you know, awe-inspiring club. So, you know, that, that, that's been with him for a long time. None of which is to say it's definitely going to happen. I am, when it comes to Kylian Mbappe, I think he's still, you know, he's tweeted about it in the past. I think the public perception of the French league suggests that even though he's brilliant, he's done it on the international stage um, and he's done it in the Champions League as well, um, that he can't get that element of greatest player in the world because he's not playing in one of the best leagues in the world. Um, whether La Liga will answer that question, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but he's a pretty good player. Half decent, got to say. <laughs> uh, enjoyed his performance the other night. Big future, the kids. So uh, we'll see where he ends up at next season. 
Well, we've had a look at the three games in the Champions League so far this week. There was one other. First timers in the knockout stage, RB Salzburg getting a one-all draw with Bayern Munich. Konstantin Ekner joins us now uh, to take a look at that game. We'll talk a little bit of Manchester United too. Uh, Konstantin, how surprised were you that Salzburg managed to hold on for this result? Uh, a little bit, yes. Um, I still think that Bayern are still a favourite to beat Salzburg and uh, the return leg. And I, I mean, I was surprised by Salzburg's performance. Um, as many may know, that um, they have lost a couple of uh, key players over the past two, two and a half years. I mean, if you remember Erling Haaland and all these guys uh, have left. And um, that a new team, a team with less known players, um, with a less known coach. Um, but they really showed the Salzburg typical performance, which is, you know, fast plays. Um, playing out of the backfield, pretty, pretty speedy and um, overwhelming opponents a little bit, but still surprising that they were able to overwhelm Bayern uh, during phases of the game. And so I think it was also a fair result in the end. Uh, and in Salzburg had a chance to actually win it, seal it, um, make it 2-0, uh, I think uh, 10 minutes before uh, the final whistle. So uh, yeah, I was surprised, but still I was also impressed by Salzburg's performance overall. We seem to think, we just, uh, you know, it comes out naturally when we talk about the favourites for the Champions League that Bayern Munich will be mentioned. But under Julian Nagelsmann, are they that dominant side that we've seen in the past few years? Of course, under Hansi Flick in particular, winning the, the Champions League. Is this Bayern at that level? I think if you take the starting 11 and let's say the best starting 11 they have and maybe three, three or four substitution players, if, if anyone of every, everyone is fit, no one has a positive COVID test and so on. I think they are still, they still have one of the best teams in Europe and they still are among the favorites, among the two, three, four favorites to win the Champions League. Problem is Bayern's bench is pretty thin. Um, they have a couple of injuries, worries. They have players who get tested positive, who are out. Um, and that's, that's really the biggest concern right now. Um, we can look back at the past or the latest um, match in the Bundesliga. They lost four to two. To, uh, Paul Borum. Borum is, you know, <laughs> a lower, lower, a lower first table side. Um, they lost convincingly against Borum. And, uh, one of the biggest issues that was discussed afterwards was that most of the players, um, are pretty sure of their starting 11 spot right now. I mean, they don't have to give 100% all the time because they know they will be in the starting 11 next weekend or next Wednesday. So that's a big concern because when you look at the bench, they have a couple of reserve players, youth players. Um, it's pretty thin there. And I think that's really the biggest issue right now of Bayern are facing. They didn't do much during the winter transfer window that might hurt them uh, moving forward when it comes to their prospects in the Champions League. I saw reports this week that Nagelsmann is unhappy with the transfer activity and how the, the club approached January. Can, can you understand those frustrations or because of the strength of Bayern in the Bundesliga, um, are you more with the club in that they don't really need to invest at a very high level? I think Nagelsmann reflects what, what I just said, that uh, really his bench is a concern and he doesn't have much competition within the team right now. Um, so how do you push someone to 95 or 100% if there's no competition for his position or for his spot in the starting 11? So I think that's what Nagelsmann has alluded to. Um, moreover, uh, Bayern, they have a couple of players right now. Uh, Mark Rocca, uh, Corentin Polizo in midfield, for instance. Players who are there, who are expensive, but who don't bring much to the table. Um, and I think the Bayern front office, the, the hierarchy, they want to get rid of these players first and then they want to reinvest some money and get new players. 
it's hard to do that during the winter transfer window when you don't have really a, a buyer's market um, and not a strong buyer's market um, and getting rid of players who are who have been sitting on the bench for most of their uh, stint at Bayern uh, is really hard. And also Bayern as most clubs in Europe have been hurt by uh, COVID and revenue has, you know, has dropped. Uh, revenue streams have died down at least partially. Um, I mean, Bayern are still a wealthy uh, club and financially they are still healthy. Um, but still, I mean, even they don't have the big pockets right now to just buy another 50 million player um, or buy two or three 30 million players. Um, so that's, that might also be uh, the thought process um, in Bayern's offices. Nagelsmann, from his coaching perspective, just looked at his team and thinks, oh, well, I, I need a few more players here uh, to really have competition within the team. Um, I mean, also, uh, just to uh, you know, look back at the early January phase, there were like four, five, six Bayern players coming back from holiday, all positive, COVID positive. So they were all out of the team. Uh, that's how, how this, how this uh, second half of the season started. So it wasn't really a good start, uh, but it didn't do anything in the winter since Corrindo. Um, well, it might hurt them, as I said. Constantine, I do want to ask you about one other topic because when Ralph Rannick came in at Manchester United, you joined us on the Game Podcast to, to give us the lowdown. So far in the Premier League, he's had 11 games in charge, six wins, four losses and one defeat. What do you think we've learned about his coaching quality? Do you, do you think he is good enough for Manchester United over the longer term, possibly? You, you might uh, change the question a little bit and ask like, who is good enough for Manchester United right now? Rangnick is a good tactician. He's a thinker. I believe he has shown that already in some, in some games at least, um, when you look closely. Um, but I think he's not the most talented uh, man manager or locker room manager. You know, he's not a Jurgen Klopp uh, who can manage a locker room quite well or he needs to be done maybe. Um, he's, he's more of a tactician. He has to work with a functional team. Uh, what you right now see is that United isn't that kind of functional team he, has, he needs. Um, and also there are some players who apparently don't buy into his ideas. Um, but that isn't really where Frank's uh, fault. I mean, he is a little bit of a lame duck because everyone knows that uh, come summer, um, he won't be the head coach anymore. He will be consultant. But what does that any, what does that mean really? I mean, we don't know, right? He won't be the sporting director. He won't be the manager. He won't be the chairman of something. Um, so, that's really a problem. Uh, and I think some players uh, just don't really care about what, what Ralph Rangnick says. Uh, but I think he's really in a difficult spot right now and, and most coaches would struggle. Um, and that's really uh, the issue Man United are facing right now. Uh, who's good enough? Who's the coach who will turn this team around? Good luck finding one. Konstantin Ekner, thank you very much for joining us on the Game Podcast this week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss England's big six clubs have succeeded in fighting off a new owner's charter with the project mothballed after the Premier League failed to secure universal approval for the proposal. The charter conceived in response to the short-lived European Super League last April. Six clubs joined, uh, but the six clubs, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Spurs and the two Manchester clubs have now refused to sign it because it would commit to them only qualifying for the Champions League via current sporting merit. I read you there an article from the Times chief sports reporter, Martin Ziegler, who joins us on the game now with more on this story. Hi, Martin. Hi, Hugh. Firstly, tell us why only getting to the Champions League through current sporting merit sounds like such a bad thing to these clubs. Well, I think it's a safety net, effectively, that if they don't get into the Champions League, through finishing the top four of the Premier League, it's uh, there's another chance. Now, obviously, this is very controversial because it means, for example, Manchester United could finish sixth and qualify for the Champions League ahead of teams finishing fifth. So, for example, West Ham, because they've never been in the Champions League, they wouldn't have a high coefficient. So Manchester United would effectively leapfrog them. And obviously that's very controversial. So the Super League is clearly still on their minds. This is something that a lot of fans are worried about. It's been spoken about. I saw Gary Neville tweeting about it this week. The Super League will be back. What's your sense on it? Not necessarily if it will be back, but it feels more like a when. I don't think there's any immediate threat of that happening. I think the Premier League have brought in new rules separate to the owners' charter. I mean, it, they've signed up to a thirty-point deduction if they join a breakaway competition again. So that's a, that's a massive disincentive. I think there is definitely a sort of power struggle around this sort of European issue, and I, I think what the Premier League executive is hoping is that UEFA won't actually push ahead with this idea, and that it will save them a problem. The owners' charter. Why do we need it? They're obviously discussing it, but do you think it will be passed? Do you think these clubs will come to some sort of agreement on what it looks like? And for you, what will that be? 
So there were some interesting things that clubs would have to sign up to on an annual basis, such as agreeing to a one-club, one-vote system, um, supporting the England national team, financial sustainability. But I think what's happened now is also, as well is that the Tracy Crouch review, the, uh, the panel and review of football, has thrown up another load of issues such as whether there should be an independent regulator. And I think what will happen is we won't see the charter now and it's all going to be wrapped up into the Premier League's response to the, uh, the the Crouch report. They will accept some things and fight against the idea of having an outside regulator. That's why I think actually the owner's charter in its proposed form will probably never see the light of day. It's a strange one, isn't it? I mean, we're getting used to it now in British society, people marking their own homework. Um, should the Premier League be able to influence whether there is an independent regulator or not for you? Well, I, I think it's okay for the uh, for, for the football to have, football clubs to have their views and for those views to be listened to. I do think the Premier League shouldn't be the regulator because at the moment it, it, it's in a situation where it often regulates its own clubs and that, that's not right. So whether the independent regulator is actually a sort of beefed up football association. That's not which I think the Premier League will go for. I wouldn't say that's the worst idea in the world, but um, you know, obviously the FA has its own competitions. You've got the FA Cup, so there is another problem there. But I think it, I think it's absolutely fine for the, for people to make their views known, but they necessarily should be the the, you know, the, the most influential views. I tend to agree with you on that. Martin Ziegler, thank you for joining us very quickly on the Game Podcast with an update on where the game seems to be going. Appreciate it. Now, staying on European football, it's not just the Champions League this week. The Europa League returned with some fantastic ties and some for us to discuss. I'll come to the others in a few moments. But since, Ian, you're in Barcelona, this tie against Napoli... When it was drawn, looked like it could only be possibly one result, that Napoli would absolutely destroy Barcelona. They had an intriguing January transfer window. Um, Barcelona, this is. How equal, if you like, how level do you think this, this tie is? Or do you still believe Napoli are going to wipe the floor with the Spanish Giants? What do you think? Um, I, I, th- I think they, they could do. You know, Napoli are, are a very strong side, really in contention for the Serie A title. And, and, in a total contrast, in a way, to, to Barcelona, they they have been playing broadly with the same personnel and certainly a similar style for quite a long time. They know what they're doing. Whereas Barcelona, as you say, they, they have brought in an entire new front three in the transfer window, resourcefully, given that they supposedly haven't got any money. And who you know who who knows uh, which of the the many strikers, all of them slightly flawed. Um, will line up tonight. Um, it could be the entirely new front three, all of whom came from the, the Premier League. So, so I think even Xavi, the, the manager, um, is still looking for clarity as, as to you know how best to accommodate these new players. So, yeah, I'm I, I'm intrigued. Uh, I, I think I mean it, it is it is on paper a heavyweight tie, which is you know glamorizes the Europa League for that. And and I think we really don't know. Uh, what's going to go on. I'm really looking forward to, to watching Adama Traore playing in a European tie at Camp Nou. He's been terrific since he, he arrived. But I think overall, over two legs, yeah, you'd have to say Napoli must be the favourite. Ian, I remember the three of us discussing Barca earlier in the season and I put it to you whether they were more of a Manchester United situation where they had a 
big club and just needed the kind of right manager and the right fit, or they were an Arsenal and they were more kind of in in a kind of state of uh, building from the bottom up and having to start again. And you suggested they were a bit more like Arsenal. And then they've kind of taken a slightly Manchester United-esque approach to solving it by spending loads of money on lots of players that perhaps don't necessarily work, but let's throw them all on the pitch and see if it happens. How has that been viewed in Spain? Because obviously we see lots of kind of sarcastic social media posts about, oh, where have you got this money from? But I mean, are other teams in uproar? Are they kind of slightly bemused? How how is it being viewed, this kind of Barcelona remake? There has been a little bit of uproar, obviously, from uh, smaller clubs about about the way they have got round what was a, a really restrictive, or if you're from Barcelona, punitive um, uh, cap on on how much they they could spend because of their debt, because of the blurring in income and so on. They are coming out of that. You know, Barcelona are a big club, which means there are income streams. It's a matter of degree, but. Um, they are coming out of that. And in the meantime, I suppose you could say they have been uh, quite shrewd in in the mechanics of, say, getting Aubameyang and getting and getting Traore from Wolves. Now, again, with Barcelona, you know, there's there's a there's an important presentational aspect. Um, yes, it does. You know, they, it, it does look like a team thrown together. You know, Luke de Jong. Um, uh, not a typical Barcelona player by by any means. Um, but remember, um, Adama Traore is is a former La Masia graduate, so so he keys into that um, homegrown thing, which is very very important presentationally. And behind him, the, the positives of the season have been the the young players promoted from the academy and and thriving in midfield. Gavi and Nico, the midfielders particularly. You know that there were through through certain lenses, this Barcelona are being true to the traditions that that they say are important. Around the rest of it, yeah, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of passing traffic. That's for sure. Um, you know, how long will Aubameyang be there? How long will Luke de Jong be there? I think a lot of purists will say um, just as long as he scores a few headed goals before the end of the season, and then he can go. But yeah, but uh, but I would, but, but back to your initial point, I, I would say still they are slightly more Arsenal than Manchester United. What happens this summer with Barcelona? I mean, Barcelona will want to come back to the higher stage. Does it matter whether they're in the Champions League or not next season um, to what the club does? Um, because they've got, like you say, those brilliant young players. Will they now be, be they've brought in some big names, will they be avoiding them now at all costs? Will they be focused in on those younger players? Did they just bring in the likes of Aubameyang to guarantee Champions League football and then will they, they move beyond them? That's a very good question. And of course, um, <laughs> this will partly be uh, defined because it always is by what happens at Real Madrid. So, you know, if Mbappe goes to Real Madrid, Barcelona will have to continue to make big noises about Erling Haaland. Um, you know, because you can't possibly be be out trumped by by Real Madrid, at least at least in terms of your presentation. But you know, they are you know they 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 need money, and the Champions League, the difference between the Champions League and the Europa League, is is very significant. And um, also, you know, how how do you attract very good players if you're not in the Champions League? So all those things are the Champions League is vital at the moment. They're fourth, but only by the 
narrow margin, a very tight fight, which is another reason why the Europa League is is important for them. You know, it, it may be their it may be their backdoor there if they can sustain a good run. But yeah, no, I, 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 qualifying for the Champions League um, will absolutely affect their summer. Elsewhere in the Europa League, I think the Europa League is now, and I'm, I'm going to put it out there, in many ways, it is turning into a better competition than the Champions League. Now, I'm not necessarily going to say quality of football, but entertainment, and they are two different things, by the way. I, I think it might be greater in the Europa League. It feels like there's more jeopardy, there's less predictability, but it also does something that the Champions League was supposed to do. It throws up ties with teams all over Europe. I thought that was the whole point. So instead of seeing English and Italian sides go head to head with the Spanish teams, and I know the Italians haven't been great of late, but it feels like every season you will see big Spanish teams and big English teams play one another. Paris Saint-Germain will play Bayern Munich. You know, it, it is getting repetitive in that way. I think the Europa League still throws up something a little bit different. I mean, look at these ties. If we carry on with Spain, for example, Leipzig taking on Sociedad, beautiful. Um, Zagreb taking on Sevilla, sensational. Dortmund against Rangers, take me back to 1997. Lazio against Porto, it's 2002 all over again. That is that is what these tournaments were supposed to be about for me. That's all I'm going to say. Before we talk about some of the ties I just mentioned, does anyone agree with me that the Europa League might be a better competition in that way? Tom, what do you think? I think you're right if... In, in, in this moment, in this moment of the competition, and your argument is particularly helped by matches like Manchester City against Sporting Lisbon, where, and the conversation that we've had already about that competition, where, as you say, it feels like we're all waiting for that dream semi-final, Liverpool v PSG, City v Bayern, you know, that, that we're waiting for that. And then we'll be saying, wow, wasn't this amazing? So in that sense, and, you know, using your definition of competition in terms of the jeopardy, the intrigue, that this could go anyway. And also, for me, I've talked about this before, these European competitions are a great way of exhibiting new players to us, new players, new managers, new clubs, new styles of football. Even the the PSGs and the Bayerns are quite familiar to us now. We're going to learn a lot. If you follow the, the, um, the Europa League from here to its completion, you'll discover loads of exciting players, I'm sure. Loads of new managers, managers who might well be linked with moves to the Premier League in the future. So in that sense, I think you're right. It's certainly got a lot more intrigue. And in terms of a competition, in terms in terms of competitiveness, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you've got a good case there, Hugh. Yeah, well I, I think I think you've sold this round superbly with your uh, <laughs> ties. And they you know they are they're, they're, you know they are they are oh I'm gonna stay in for that. Um uh, most of them. Um the, the, the only thing I would say is actually while the Champions League last sixteen at the moment does look very sort of, you know, English heavy and, and, you know, possibly a little predictable. It is unusually open by very recent standards. You know, Salzburg have, have given us the, you know, the, the least expected results so far. Ajax look, you know, genuinely potential semi-finalists. Villarreal are still, you know, are still in it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think, I think it's quite a, it's a slightly more diverse, um, Champions League last 16 in some ways. Um, but also the change of format for the Europa League, now that you have this, you know, the, the round we've got this week, which is, which is in a sense, a qualifier to, to get to join the likes of West Ham and, and big clubs like that later on, um, has sort of condensed the, the glamour of it, I think, at this stage. 
Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And look, that, that, there are some big teams still in the Europa League, but I think one of the the interesting things about it is actually just, you know, the names in the hat. I just think there are, what well, there are always going to be 12 to 16 teams in the Champions League every single year, guaranteed. And the fact that some teams that finish, you know, might be fifth, sixth, seventh in their league, maybe second, third in other divisions, it seems to change more regularly. So actually, you know, you just get teams who may have never been in Europe in the Europa League one year. You see grounds, you see fans that maybe you don't see. And it has that element of uniqueness that I think maybe the Champions League might be missing a little bit because of that familiarity with the, with the grounds and the clubs and the big brands and the big names. Ian, Hugh obviously mentioned the, some of the Spanish teams in there, Sevilla and Sociedad. And I kind of talked about some potential for us to discover new names, new players. Have either of those teams got young players or players that have finally kind of showing their talent that we should be keeping an eye out? Those two. I mean, just just back to the, um, you know, the, the wonderful variety of the Europa League, which, you know, which, which, which is true. Um, Sevilla are the club who have tried to make the Europa League as predictable as possible over the years. Yes, yeah, true. By winning it <laughs> again and again and again. They, I mean, the Turner, you know, Sevilla are a modern miracle for their their clever use of the transfer market. So there's always a bit of turnover there. But um, in essence, their strengths are still around those players who, who won the, the Europa League in 2021? No, 2020, beg your pardon, um, uh, when Manchester United uh, got to the semis. Um, so, I mean, we know about Jules Koundé being a very admired and capable and very versatile defender he's important they've got a terrific goalkeeper in Bono um, and, th- and they have this you know this this sort of Moroccan core of the team Bono and in the Serie up front Sociedad are, are a lovely story they've been getting better and better over a period now some of the impetus from that coming from when David Silva joined and it, you know you'll, you'll remember Adnan Yanisai being being a good young player once in England and he's still quite a young player and he still does useful things sometimes off the bench but uh. Dortmund against Rangers um, is one that I think a lot of British football fans will be watching out for because they want to see what they want to see what Jude Bellingham is up to and loads of interesting young players do you rank them amongst the favourites for the Europa League Dortmund? Yeah you would say so I, I would say overall over the last I don't know 10 years probably since they were in the final they've been slightly disappointing as a European force Dortmund um, but given that um, they're not going to win the Bundesliga again, and I think that the period where they believe they might win the Bundesliga might uh, might be even shorter this year. Um, yeah, you would you would fancy them, and they do. You know, they do they do have a really good core of young players led by Bellingham. So um, yeah, it, they have to be among among the favourites. I, I you know I think I, I think Rangers will, will will give them a reasonably tough game. Something for us to look forward to, I think, uh, in the Europa League this season. I, the players emerging, though, I thought that was an interesting point that you mentioned, Tom. Um, so very, very quickly, Ian, I just wondered who'd caught your eye outside of the traditional massive clubs, might be playing Europa League, might even be playing Europa Conference League, that maybe we should be looking out for as we go into these next set of European games. For people who haven't watched Barca a lot, um, uh, Gavi, who, who really is only six months into his senior career he's been he's been a terrific midfielder and he's very watchable as well i mean he's you know he's he's got a lovely touch and so on but uh, he's also he's very very feisty 
for a 17, maybe 18 now year old. You know, he'll, he's, he, he will, he puts his foot in and, um, he has a, a long career of success and I think probably quite a few yellow cards as well. So he's, he's one to look out for. Um, I think, I mean, with Dortmund, um, uh, there are those, those teenagers coming through who, you know, who, who got a start early. Gio Reyna, uh, would be another one, the son of, of, of Claudio. Um, I think he's probably, they're probably ready for him now to make the, the next step up but he's a he's a lovely player to watch well Ian thank you very much something for us to look out for in European football this week um, loads for us to react to we've got Premier League coming up on the weekend in particular Leeds taking on Manchester United but thank you very much we'll have more European football uh, next week as well Ian Hawkey for joining us from Spain and Tom Clark thank you very much as well and to all of you for listening remember if you enjoy the game podcast make sure you leave us a review otherwise make sure you're subscribed to the Times and the Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism sign up today you'll get yourself one month free it's the times.co.uk forward slash the game and we'll see you on monday